Watch out for Canberra wildcards. Will Australia get a star in the US flag? And US think tank says 80% drop in Afghan opium, bad for world. Coming up on today's Citizens Report. Welcome to the Citizens Report for the 22nd of June 2023. I'm Elisa Barwick. Joining me today is Citizens Party researcher Richard Barden. Welcome, Richard. Thanks, Elisa. And on today's show, we're going to be discussing um, events in the next 24, 48 hours in Canberra. Uh, there's some big things on the cards, actually, so uh, there'll be plenty to look out for in terms of progress in our various campaigns there. Uh, then we're going to discuss uh, something Richard has written up for this week's Australian Alert Service, and that is the newly announced uh, government's critical mineral strategy and the implications for our sovereignty for the two AUKUS issues. Uh, and then we will discuss uh, the fact that, well, Afghanistan has cut opium um, poppy production by 80%. Some do not think that's such a good idea. So stay tuned for all of those segments. Don't forget to hit uh, the like button. Make a comment below. There were plenty of great comments last week. It all adds to the um, algorithm and sharing and spreading this as widely as possible. Share it in social media. Uh, and don't forget you can also find a link below where you can donate to help us in our various campaigns. Uh, don't forget also in particular at the moment we have a campaign for the by-election in Fadden where you can also see the link below to our website for Jan Pacalis' campaigns, whether you can support financially or actually go out and hit the streets with Jan. They're having a lot of fun up there. Alrighty, on to our first topic. Watch out for Canberra wildcards. So as we're speaking, uh, Robert Barwick, the research director of the Citizens Party, is headed for the airport and he will hop on a plane to Canberra. There are a number of things actually um, concentrated today and tomorrow happening in Canberra, some of which were not even on the cards until the last day or two, and out of which some very enormous potentials can result. So we'll just run through those things one by one. Uh, firstly is Project Iron Boomerang. Now, this is a, a great project. Um, perhaps you can give a, a thumbnail idea of it, Richard, which would transform the north of Australia, but also the potential for us to really develop our manufacturing capacity, to trade with our northern neighbours in the Asia-Pacific. Mm. Uh, there's a, going to be a hearing about this in Canberra tomorrow, uh, today, uh, which is going to present to the inquiry, the full committee that is listening to this proposal, um, the developed plan to get this in motion ASAP. Mm. Yeah, so the Iron Boomerang is uh, basically uh, you've got the world's biggest and best iron ore reserves in the northern part of WA, the Pilbara region and so on, and you've got the Bowen Basin coking coal, top-grade top uh, metallurgical coal. And so the idea is to build uh, a double-track uh, railway and development corridor across the northern uh, across the north of Australia, connecting those two um, those two mining areas and putting steel mills, uh, a steel mill complex and uh, export um, ports um, at either end, uh, and making the steel here instead of just digging up the ores and selling them to 
uh, sell into other countries, mainly in Asia, China, Korea, um, Japan, and buying the steel product back again. Mm. Uh, and it makes it's a it's a win-win for everybody, uh, and they all want in on it too because it's more efficient for them to make steel. To, to contribute to and help pay for the making of steel here mm. and buy the primary steel and take it back to their own countries and make products out of it rather than uh, rather than shipping all of that uh, ore over there and then refining it themselves. So, it, uh, And it even keeps the greenies happy. Yeah, <laughs> it reduces <laughs> Because it reduces all, yeah, mm. through all sorts of ways, including these energy-efficient um, gas-electric trains, uh, and of course, moving small, relatively small amounts of, of steel instead of huge amounts of ore mm-hmm. across oceans, and in those cases, sending the ships back empty because it's not like we're going to put bulk anything else on those and bring back to Australia. So mm. um, it's, uh, it's it ticks win-win. all the boxes, yeah. uh, and all at once is a bit of government backing, a uh, bit of seed money, a bit of rezoning of the corridor, mm. uh, and it can all go ahead. Uh, and so, yeah, it's uh, finally getting the attention it deserves. Yeah, the plans are all there. It's all everything's been done. Now, there's been we'll report further after these hearings today, of course. But um, basically, the bottom line is there's been a lot going on behind the scenes, and critical progress has been made to get it to the point where they can win acceptance potentially in the parliament to have this project get the go ahead. Um, there are two government senators that are getting behind this in terms of, you know, love the idea. So let's see what progress we get on that uh, today. Stay tuned. Uh, secondly, the ASIC inquiry. Um, there's been an ongoing inquiry into ASIC headed by Senator Andrew Bragg for some time. We put out a press release on Tuesday because for a while now, uh, we and others have had the firm sense that this was going nowhere. Uh, it was just being dragged out and, and nothing had happened. Uh, our press release referenced the case of Wayne Ditchburn and his partner Rowena, whose um, they had been bank victims, and basically they put a submission to this inquiry, which they re- the inquiry rejected and said this is not relevant to this inquiry. Mm. It's the most relevant thing possible. So um, this was you know, a real problem. We could see that this issue wasn't being taken seriously um, and Wayne was just told to go to uh, AFCA, the Financial Complaints Authority, which, you know, has which, been done time and time again. Yeah, which he, he had already been to and had all these run-ins with. And so mm. so um, we put out a uh, media release, as I mentioned, saying, look, it's time to get serious, Senator Bragg. This is not good enough everything from the Royal Commission, everything that John Adams has revealed with his report on the fact that ASIC is not investigating any of the complaints mm. or a tiny, tiny fraction of the complaints that come onto their table. Um, and that afternoon, after we put the press release out, uh, the committee did two things. They released a interim report and they also put out a media release which was a veritable declaration of war on ASIC. So this was uh, rather interesting. And they've also um, promised to refer ASIC to the Privileges Committee, which is a committee that has the capability to actually take uh, criminal action Mm. um, and pursue um, this in that sense. Yeah, there's even a couple of jail cells in the um, lower levels of parliament for people who are... Uh, you know, 
just like courts can remand people in custody for contempt of court if you, you know, refuse to answer questions or you uh, make various other transgressions, they can actually lock you up. Yes, and this actually takes it <laughs> it's to a very, a, very, very serious. Yeah, this takes it to a much more serious uh, level. And in the press release that uh, Senator Andrew Bragg, uh, Bragg's office put out, they announced the release of this interim report and basically summarised, you know, what they were saying in it, which is that the corporate regulator ASIC is they use the word addicted to secrecy and mm. obfuscation, and they just said outright, look, ASIC will not provide the information we require and they're recommending that the Senate order the provision of certain information. Uh, The report says that the committee has formed a view that ASIC's refusal to provide this information is obstructing the committee's ability to conduct this inquiry, which again shows the level of seriousness, and they told ASIC to reflect on its conduct. (laughs) Uh, And the committee also dismissed Chair, the chair of ASIC, Joe Longo's plea for immunity in the public interest and his insistence in a speech that he made the same day, that Tuesday, that he is, uh, an ASIC is a leader in the area of transparency. <laughs> right. um, so now the Australian Financial Review carried coverage of this the same day and it even cited our media release on this matter. Uh, it stated, the AFR stated that economist John Adams, whose report that ASIC investigates fewer than 1% of complaints received, help, received helped spark the inquiry, shared the concern of the Citizens Party that Senator Bragg's inquiry was being stonewalled. Labor Senator Deb O'Neill established an identical inquiry that same day through the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Corporations and Financial and Finance Services and she accused Bragg of constructing a platform to provide himself with an opportunity for media, not for the service of the Australian people, the Citizens' Party said. Eight months later, Senator O'Neill's inquiry has done absolutely nothing, while Senator Bragg's inquiry has published 162 submissions, but that's it. It hasn't held hearings yet or taken any other action. Mr Adams recently obtained Freedom of Information documents which revealed that Treasury officials concluded that his claims about ASIC's enforcement record were substantially correct, mm. which is rather interesting too um, because there was nothing happened. He put in, put in these uh, FOI re- requests and this reveals that, we, you know, that we're onto something here, right? Mm. This is a really serious matter. Um, so... Um, Hopefully, this is going to spark a much bigger and harder push to get some action on this front. So that's the other big event in Canberra this week. Um, Now, the Regional Banking Closure Inquiry, um, they, uh, this is not relevant necessarily to Canberra this week, but they have announced that they're holding hearings in Western Australia. So, of course, they've already held hearings in Sale here in Victoria. They've held some querying, some hearings in Uh, regional Queensland towns uh, and they're going to be holding hearings on the 14th and 15th of August in Karnama and Beverley in Western Australia. And of course Karnama for those for our regular viewers will recognise the name that's one of the towns that's uh, that's lost its last bank um, Mm. because of these completely irrational and unjustified uh, bank closures, which Westpac has proven by reversing the ones in North Queensland and elsewhere that it had said it was going to close. Oh, no, no, turns out we don't need to do that after all. So they've been, they and the other banks have been lying all along. These are viable branches, some of them very, very profitable and, 
essential to the functioning of these rural communities. Yeah, and so that'll certainly come up in the discussions with members of parliament that Robbie will be holding this week. The other thing that um, is potentially coming up for a vote today is the CSLR legislation, which is the... um, Remind me what that stands for. Compensation scheme of last resort for the people who can't get redress or compensation from uh, bank... bank, uh, Victims of bank misconduct and crimes and so on who can't get uh, compensated through the courts for various reasons or the Financial Complaints Authority uh, can go to this government-run thing and that's, yeah, as, as the name says, compensation scheme of last... Last resort. So if all else fails, then yeah. we'll, you know, give you some of your money back that the banks scammed you out of. So this is relevant um, to the Sterling First victims, many of whom are in Western Australia. We've talked about many times on the show, but they were actually excluded in the the way that the CSLR is structured. Mm. They wouldn't be covered by it. However, and, and these are victims just for people who don't know who had. Um, paid their rent in advance mm. to see out their years in in a, a home uh, and actually had been suckered into a scam. Yeah, a managed investment scheme uh, sold, falsely sold as a, as a rent for life uh, retirement housing um, deal yeah. that ASIC uh, and the relevant uh, WA... Uh, this because you know, still this happened in Western Australia. So the relevant state government department that uh, is supposed yeah. to keep an eye on these things basically knew or should have known mm-hmm. uh, that these guys were serial scam artists and they just let them do it and That's even helped right. them do it anyway. There were umpteen red flags and many of the victims of the scheme called ASIC, did their due diligence, um, nothing was flagged to them. Now... Stephen Jones, when he was in opposition, uh, had promised the Sterling victims, we will include you in the CSLR, but has since reneged on that promise. Now, when this legislation comes up today for a vote, One Nation Party is going to add an amendment that Mm. would include Sterling first. So what we will see this afternoon, if this goes ahead, uh, is likely that the Labor government will vote down that amendment. And if that's the case, well, get ready for a, a new salvo in the fight because that really makes it very clear what's going on here. So that's coming up. And finally, uh, on the Canberra front, we will, of course, be pushing for our legislation to be tabled for a, a National Post Office People's Bank. We need to have the capacity of a government-owned and run bank Um, in this country at this time of crisis. We'll be meeting with members of parliament to nail down the introduction of our bill. We want it to be on the table in combination with this regional banking closures inquiry because it puts the alternative um, squarely on the table to all these private banks shutting down branches to show, look, if we have a public alternative, it will guarantee services in regional and remote communities because it can be operated through a post office bank, as was the case originally when the um, the first and original Commonwealth Bank was started. That's how it operated. Um, it can invest in things, uh, infrastructure and things like housing in particular, social housing, which we so desperately need. Um, it can um, re-engage the kind of uh, activity that the Commonwealth Bank once did 
in which the Reserve Bank, our central bank today, should be doing in terms of addressing the mortgage crisis, where we can begin to have government interventions to um, uh, direct credit into mm. where it should be, stop it from going into inflating asset bubbles like the housing market and mm. direct it into the real um, activity that's going to grow the economy. Yeah, and you know, refi- we've talked about it on the show before, refinance... Uh, refinance home loans so people don't lose their don't lose their homes in the in the meantime. You know whether the prices crash or whatever happened. You know all these interest rate rises now where people can't afford to to pay their mortgage or to sell. So uh, through special facilities regulated, so the banks can't just skim profits off off them like they otherwise would do. All of these powers exist, and the government's refusing to use them. Mm. Yeah, and so all all of the things that they claim we don't have the money to do. Uh, In the next segment, we're going to talk about how they're trying to get more investment coming from the United States. For instance, all this nonsense can all be swept away if we have a government bank um, that can create credit, as all banks do, but in a national sense of priority to put where it needs, where the investment needs to be Mm. made to develop this country to make all industries, agriculture that we desperately need to grow and other crucial infrastructure viable and make it happen because mm. those priorities are not negotiable. Yeah, and as we've said many times, to force the major banks to compete on service again like they used to have to do yeah. against the Commonwealth Bank. Exactly, yep. Yep, so now on to our next topic. Will Australia get a star in the US flag? <laughs> now, last week, on last week's show, we played a clip actually from the head of New Zealand's Maori Party and uh, many people commented under the show um, that it was great to see that level of engagement. This fellow, you can go back and watch last week's show if you want to see the clip, but this fellow is very refreshing in his honesty of talking about um, Australia basically becoming the 51st state mm. of the USA, which is the reference, of course, in the headline. Uh, and, um, you know, the orcas dealers, he said, and, you know, these submarines are not welcome in our waters. Um, you know, New Zealand is putting the foot down in that sense. And Australia, we need to get more motion on this in Australia. There are a lot of different organisations and groups that are, um, working with us on this anti-war front, anti-AUKUS front, um, the more this kind of push is made, the more the real agenda uh, for war and geopolitical divisions is being exposed, in fact, and giving us the potential to really make the shift that we need to get this country back on track to have our country have actual sovereignty again. Um, so what we're reporting on in this segment in particular, though, is... Um, what's being described as a new compact between the USA and Australia. Now, this was announced on the 20th of May in a joint statement by um, US President Biden and our Prime Minister Albanese. And they stated at that time that under AUKUS, our two countries will enter into a cooperation agreement to, quote, advance our defence and security collaboration Uh, Biden announced that he would be asking the Congress to add Australia as a, quote, domestic source within the Defence Production Act. Mm. Now, 
a domestic source. There's only other one, one other country that um, is um, labelled as a potential domestic source for the United States, and that's Canada, which mm. at least is right yeah. next door. But for Australia to be designated as a domestic source mm. for America to source raw materials required for the war effort and beyond is rather extraordinary. Um, the US is going to invest through this program, if it all goes ahead, in the production and purchase of Australian critical minerals, critical technologies and other strategic sectors. Um, a lot of it is couched in terms of um, uh, rare earth minerals and so forth that are required to create the batteries that we need to have a carbon-free world. So it's all put in the, yeah. the green so context. Yeah, just there are two announcements the same day. Mm. So one is this uh, compact thing that, uh, that it, um, we'll explain more in a minute about the green energy stuff. Uh, and that's in parallel with this uh, thing about the Defence Production Act and Australia being uh, added to the... It would have to. The reason that Biden has to ask Congress is because the uh, the Congress would have to pass an amendment to this act. From it's from back in the early 1950s, mm. I think 1950, um, that gives the uh, presidential administration, <clears throat> excuse me, presidential administration certain authority to uh, issue low interest loans and preferential yeah. um, arrangements to. Uh, defence companies and defence contractors and, and mining operations and whatever they need to provide for their national defence. Uh, and then they added Canada to it at some time later and now they, now they want to add Australia to it um, so that those same provisions can be extended in here. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah, so that compact you referred to on the Green Front is um, a bilateral cooperation agreement under a Climate Critical Minerals and Clean Energy Transformation Compact which would be coordinated by a ministerial-level Australia-US task force on critical minerals, led by uh, the US National Security Council and the Australian Department of Industry, Science and Resources. Uh, now, our Resources Minister, Madeline King, spoke about this two days ago on the 20th of June when she was unveiling um, the government's critical minerals strategy. So in other words, this is all moving rather fast. It was announced on the 20th of May, 20th of June. It's been unveiled. I'll just read to you what uh, the AFR reported about um, Madeleine King's announcement. They said that the government is hoping to use Australia's status as a close ally and the prospect of it being considered the equivalent of a domestic supplier to provide Australian companies access to US investment, technology cooperation, contracts and customers. That's why the compact with the Biden administration is so important, King said, so we can use our remarkable national, natural endowment and take advantage of that and work with the US to make sure we get their investments in this country. Which, as I said before, you know, we do not need. But they're couching it in this context that, oh, the only way we can develop our country is if we mm. go to our great ally and solicit their support, they can come in and help us do it all. But there's a number of um, things that sit behind that which expose the real agenda. Um, and I'll just list the issues and you can take them up. Mm -hmm. um, our policies being dictated from the USA in regard to the development of our resources wealth. There's 
wholesale sell-off of the farm, the opposite of what Whitlam did in buying back the farm, um, shutting out China from access to our raw um, materials that they rely upon. That mm. would be a potential implication. Um, and also the kinds of... Well, the impacts that treaty arrangements, if this results in an international treaty, uh, being potentially able to override state and federal laws. I mean, are we talking about the wholesale takeover, potentially, of our raw materials by the USA? Yeah, well, that's, I mean, that's a legitimate question to ask. I mean, essential to ask, because you look at... Now, we, we, uh, we had a look at this and said, OK, well, you know, we, we ran it by a couple of uh, different uh, legal specialists in these sort of areas that we know. Um, and on paper, you would think um, it'd be all right. Um, <coughs> however, <laughs> so as I said before, what this Defence Production Act does is, is uh, it was originally designed um, just to let the US government on its own actual domestic sources and suppliers um, give them, let them get free of the the uh, usurious demands of private finance where they want this huge cut of everything and they want, they want to charge these high interest rates and they have all these conditions. And they're just basically saying, well, if this is something we need for our national defence, we're going to finance it ourselves. We're going to let these companies basically piggyback on the federal government's credit rating, which in terms of the US government is, well, most governments, um, is, is basically unlimited. Um, so in wartime... That's a legitimate thing. Yeah, yeah, or, or just being having that back that basic level of preparedness mm. um, for your military. I mean, every gov- that's every government's responsibility. Mm. That's not the, that's not an issue. But then, of course, they started extending their domestic sources into Canada next mm. door, and now they're talking about adding Australia. The thing is, though, um, and as uh, our regular viewers will remember, we've talked a lot about um, this uh, gentleman, Daniel Duggan, who's being mm. persecuted by the Australian government. Julian Assange, who everyone knows about, where the, what happens is the US government insists that its laws should apply anywhere in the world where it declares it has an interest and uh, local law and international law and treaty obligations be damned. Mm-hmm. So this uh, uh, Mr Duggan's been arrested on the basis of a, a US law that he didn't break any Australian law and shouldn't have been able to be extradited under the treaty that we have with the Americans, but they're doing it anyway. Um, Assange, of course, broke no one's laws anywhere and they retrofitted a, a charge of espionage against him that everyone <laughs> previously acknowledged had not happened uh, and everyone's you know the, the the British and the Australian government and the previous government is just playing along with this and pretending there's nothing they can do uh, and uh, so they're completely spineless they won't stand up to the Americans um, or the British but you know these this stuff in uh, in this uh, you know, this instance is being run by the Americans. So if they, and coming to the treaty obligation thing, this is, we've seen this a number of times, right? Because the, in the ordinary course of things, you wouldn't, um, you know, there are property rights, there are, there's, there's intellectual property laws. We even have a defence trade cooperation treaty from 2007 with the United States that specifically protects Australian intellectual property from being taken over and having the US export controls and secrecy provisions um, applied to it simply because the Americans adopted it for their army. But that, if there's a new, which there presumably will have to be, a new treaty obligation, uh, a new treaty uh, arrangement, I should say, um, negotiated uh, to make all this happen, 
well, we'll only find out once it's signed and published, and by then, you know, you're stuck with it. Um, but if they, basically, if, uh, if Albanese signs an agreement saying that this power that uh, the, the US president, Biden, or the next guy, or, you know, woman, whatever, doesn't make any difference. Um, if they, if he signs an agreement saying they get to apply uh, the, the president's uh, ability to decree what regulations should apply to domestic mm-hmm. suppliers, mm-hmm. Um, and that that carries weight here, well, then it does. Mm. Because the High Court has made a series of rulings where instead of, uh, going back many, many years now, where instead of looking at our constitution and saying, well, okay, anything that, because uh, there are certain powers that the federal government has, the Commonwealth has, there are certain powers that the state government has. And instead of, uh, and there are a bare handful of um, individual rights that are protected, but not very many. We don't have a Bill of Rights. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, ver- there's very few things, that, rights that are actually protected. A lot of people don't understand this. Um, but instead of looking at it as um, the government only having the powers that the Constitution specifies, the High Court has taken the view, um, as one of our legal uh, our lawyer friends explained to us, the High, the High Court has taken the view that the government can basically sign treaties and exercise powers under those treaties using its external affairs power, um, over any area where it specifically is not given power in the Constitution. Hmm. Um, now, uh, people can uh, read the article. Um, we'll put it on our website and everything yeah. um, to get, um, you know, because I, I know this is a little bit sort of legalese and, and perhaps not easily comprehensible, but the upshot of it is that they can and have used, the federal government has used these treaties, international treaties over areas where they arguably shouldn't have any authority to override um, existing legislation. Um, and one example that we've quoted before several years ago was that the, uh, the 1971 uh, Ramsar Convention mm. on Wetlands of International Significance, right, one of these environmental treaties, they used that um, as, a, as, the, as a, a pretext to, or to claim the power to stop certain uh, dam projects um, including hydroelectric dams in Tasmania. They used it to strip uh, farmers of their water title mm. in the Murray-Darling Basin and institute that Murray-Darling Basin plan that's just created a speculative market in water instead of it being a human right. And so, yeah, the danger in this, uh, this Defence Production Act thing, as I said, is that they could, and unless the High Court... Um, overturns it, which they're unlikely to do given the precedents that they've already set, uh, Albanese could very well include in this uh, be ordered and tug the forelock and, mm. and comply, mm-hmm. but um, be ordered by the Americans, uh, told to include something along the lines of that this, that these uh, US, uh, that the powers of the US president in the production, in the Defence Production Act which is for the USA's benefit alone, mm-hmm. not, not, a, not any other country. They, they're retrospectively adding countries as domestic suppliers. Mm. Um, but uh, that's for their benefit, not for ours. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, they could, this could be 
uh, the Trojan horse for yeah. a complete US takeover and rule by decree of what we do with our own minerals. Well, that's right. And the real insult to everyone's intelligence, let alone national sovereignty, is that Australia, as we've talked about before, the Australian government has all of those powers and more in terms of um, preferential financing for different economic sectors, printing money and spending it on things, if that's what they decide it takes, fiduciary mm. note issue, through the Reserve Bank since 1945. Yep. And they refuse to use them. Yep. We never needed foreign investment. And now mm. they're pretending that in order to develop our green energy and our defence you know, war material for a war that only the Americans and British want, yep. and a bunch of a handful, relative handful of lunatics in Canberra, mm. that we're going to turn over... All of this, yeah, we're going to, um, as, as you said, sell off the farm, do the complete opposite of what the Whitlam government did in the buy back the farm campaign where they were going to stop, they weren't going to repossess um, mining tenements and so on that had already been uh, leased out, but they weren't going to issue any more uh, mining licences, extraction permits and so on to foreign companies. They were, we were going to do it ourselves mm. and value add here, like we were talking about earlier with the Iron Boomerang, for yeah. example. So... You know, you want to talk about selling out everything that's left of the Labor tradition. Mm -hmm. mm. And you have to think about what we've just described here within the context of the, war, the current war drive, mm. of course, which has morphed over recent decades from targeting smaller nations for regime change to mm. the big targets, Russia and China, and remember former ambassador, um, deputy ambassador to China, John Lander, on this show on Citizens Insight, saying that Taiwan's going to be the next Ukraine, Ukraine to target Russia, Taiwan to target um, China, and Australia being on the very much the front lines mm -hmm. as the proxy in that fight. Um, so, of course, these agreements that have been announced, this new critical mineral strategy, it's all happening under AUKUS, mm. um, that the intention is preparation for war. And so if it comes to it and we have this um, strategy in place and there's a war with China and the US has um, kind of the say over our raw materials, mm. they will be able to say in some capacity, sorry, you can't sell XYZ to China, your biggest mm. trading partner, which what would that do to this nation? Yeah, yeah. Just cut us off at the knees. And you look at the example of lithium, right, because everyone wants lithium for batteries, for electric cars and all sorts of things. But it's also got a lot of um, uh, defence applications. It's, made, it's used in a lot of alloys, you know, specialty steels, as are a lot of these so-called rare earth metals. They're not actually that rare, but concentrated deposits of them are, and we've got some of the biggest and best ones anywhere that anyone knows of. Uh, and in fact, um, I've got here, a, just to show you that, yes, this is the agenda, mm. um, there's an article in the Australian newspaper today, their um, Australian Business Review, citing a new paper uh, that's been uh, co-authored by the former Labor Defence Minister, Kim Beasley, Bomber Beasley, mm. <laughs> uh, for the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, Australia's official warmongers in chief. Surprise. Um, big <laughs> surprise. Not even. Uh, saying that, uh, now this is just a preview of the paper. It's being published today. It may be up on the website, on Aspie's website by now or, or not, but um, will be there sometime today. 
saying that uh, Australia's deposits of critical minerals should become a key pillar of the AUKUS alliance in order to avoid the risks posed by China's domination of the processing and refining of rare earths and other strategic commodities. Um, now, bearing in mind, yeah, they're painting it as like, oh, China wants to take over our resources and so we should give them to the Americans instead. <laughs> the Chinese, we know from our own conversations with, with Chinese representatives, you know, Chinese diplomats and, mm. and, um, and people involved in, in the minerals trade and so on, that with China, that they can't for the life of them understand why we don't value add here and sell them yeah. The, 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 you know, at least primary stage product, again, like the iron boomerang that we were talking about, because yep. it makes better sense for everybody. They're not out to take over anything. They want, they want mutually, they want, they want all, um, what's the old saying? Let's all get rich together. Mm. Right. So, and that's all they've ever done. And even, even US military intelligence acknowledges this, as I've said before, you know, that China is not a military threat because it doesn't intend to be. Mm. It's got a long range missile deterrent and that's it. Um, and so Beasley said, this is, um, some of this is quotes and some paraphrase by the Australian, but um, says that AUKUS members should directly co-invest in Australian mines, help bankroll their development through off-take agreements and use strategic stockpiles to help ensure they stay in business in the face of Chinese competition. Um, mm. Because, and this is a quote from the paper, AUKUS capabilities and the rules-based order they uphold depend heavily on critical minerals. And China eclipses not only AUKUS for processing those minerals into usable forms, but the rest of the world combined. So they're now referring to AUKUS as a single entity, not just mm. as, a, as a security pact between us and the British and the Americans, but as we're all basically the one entity and it's called AUKUS. But again, remember when Keating said yeah. um, at the Kabuki show over in um, the US when they signed, we signed up to AUKUS, there was one, only one of us yep, was paying. Only one mug's well, paying. Again... Only one of us are fronting up all these raw materials for it. Yep. And paying them, you know, they say, oh, we'll give you all this investment that we don't actually need, as we've just said. Um, but in the meantime, we're paying several billions of dollars up front to, to help expand U.S. industrial production to make submarines to help start World War Three. You know, we're paying for it. And all of this stuff is promises down the road yep. um, and a Trojan horse for a takeover most likely, and, you know, can easily be that. And to put us on the front line of, a, of world, nuclear World War Three. Yeah, yeah, make us at least the staging point for a war with China, you know, the, the, the sort of rear echelon supply dump. They're militarising, you know, you go back to the uh, 2014 Force Posture Agreement that, um, that we signed with the Americans. We basically, and then the other things that Morrison signed in 2020, we've basically given them carte blanche to militarise the whole country and take over whole bases where they run them and we don't. Mm, mm -hmm. um, and they call this sovereignty. And speaking of Morrison, he made some comments that I think you've got there too because his comments reported today are also an admission that AUKUS was an Anglo-Australian plot. In other words, you know, the UK and Australia were the original conspirators mm. um, behind this. And he was talking in uh, the UK at the Policy Exchange think tank, I believe, and he also did an interview uh, with, who was it? Um, uh, an Australian um, author. Um, okay, yeah. Uh, who's written a book called The Secret History of the Five Eyes, which is the international electronic spying mm. alliance between um, 
the United started out the United States and and the UK during um, or the British Empire as it was then during um, World War Two mm-hmm. and even before um, the Americans got involved, but uh, officially uh, and. Of course, the uh, the rest, the other three of the five being Australia, Canada, and New Zealand, mm-hmm. the the, the uh, British colonial possessions, mm. um, and so uh, he's between these two. Uh, between the, he apparently spoke. This guy's this book came out a while ago, and now there's a new ish, there's a new um, edition of it coming out next month with a with some uh, with a new chapter at the end and a um, postscript on Orcus. And uh, yeah, effectively, that's what Morrison's admitting that um, that they that the reason that they didn't tell the French that we were going to axe the ninety billion dollar submarine contract that we had with them um, that uh, that the previous um, Liberal government um, signed uh, before Morrison took over um, wasn't that we didn't trust the French or or you know or that there was anything. The, the British are never mentioned at all. Uh, it's because they uh, were worried that the uh, that Macron would be able to talk Biden out of it, mm-hmm. um, and we'd be left sitting here twiddling our thumbs with no <laughs> with no agreement for for submarines. Now, I would argue we'd be better off without yeah. any of them. <laughs> there are conventional submarines we could have bought off the shelf already mm. to act, if we actually wanted to defend this country, but that's not the issue here. Um, Morrison is quoted saying he, Biden, could have said, oh, you know what, Emmanuel Macron has been in contact. I think we should put this off for a week or two while we work through these issues, us breaching a contract with the French. Um, um, at that point, containing things would have been impossible and this would have run and run. And then the opposition, that is the Labour Party, um, now government, would have seen uh, that what we said was going to be announced wasn't. And then the politics would have been quite catastrophic. In other words, they wouldn't have been able to dump it on Labor in, with 24 hours notice like they did to Macron and say, support this or you're soft on national security. Mm. Um, now, of course, all it takes is a hard word from the Americans and the Labor Party collapses like a house of cards nowadays anyway. But still, just the fact that they were this worried about it falling apart because of the Americans, and we've spoken before about how there's a lot of these think tankers and current and ex-government officials on this Washington think tank interchange bench going in and out of government, depending which party's in mm. charge, who were... They were, they were designing a bunch of... The, they, you know, they, were help, they were designing this stuff, but it, you, know, you can, as you said, read this as effectively an admission that this was primarily an Anglo-Australian initiative um, that they wanted to make sure the Americans were brought in on mm-hmm. and didn't have the political... Uh, leeway to wriggle out of, mm. like they sometimes do. Yeah. Now, um, still on the topic of war and things associated with war, I want to move on to our final topic for the day. US think tank says 80% drop in Afghan opium, bad for world. And that that's the language. Um, yeah, so if you think about what we've been discussing about these perpetual wars that have been going on, rolling series of wars that are never-ending and there's never any exit strategy. Um, you know, so think Iraq, Afghanistan, um, Syria, Libya, etc. Um, there's always major consequences, for the, apart from the actual war itself, for the nations involved on the front lines. And um, I just saw reports this week, um, headlines about 
French neo-Nazis smuggling weapons back from Ukraine, <laughs> you know, which is what we'd been saying from the get-go in terms of comparing the Ukraine situation even prior to Russia's um, special military operation uh, to a, a similar set of circumstances as what you'd seen in uh, Libya, for instance, where mm. the weapons of that nation-state were unleashed to terrorists and spread across the globe, mm -hmm. uh, not across the globe, I should say, but across the region, um, and fed into the ISIS networks. And remember um, President Vladimir Putin when he went to the UNGA, UN General Assembly meeting in late, I think, September 2015, uh, he said, you know, dare I say to you, look what you've created. Yeah. Do you see what you have created yeah. Do here? Do you realise what you have done? Yeah, that's right. And they did it before. They did it in Afghanistan in the 70s and 80s and created al-Qaeda. Mm, you know? Exactly. And from the start of the Ukraine situation, um, Scott Ritter, the weapons inspector who revealed that there were no uh, weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, he said, look, you know, this is how terrorism is created. You go into a country like Ukraine and you train ordinary people and you give them weapons mm. and you let them circulate. You just flood them in. Where are they going to end up? That's how you create terrorism. Mm. Yep. That's how it was done, as you said, in Afghanistan. That's created al-Qaeda, which led to ISIS and what we see today, which is a threat to, it is a threat to the whole globe, um, as we've seen in various terrorist attacks over recent years. Um, Another side to that is uh, another critical element in funding weapons flows and in the terrorist networks, and that's drugs. And uh, what, was, what we saw in Afghanistan, um, there'd been an attempt to crack down, a quite successful attempt to crack down on opium poppy uh, production by the first Taliban government in the 1990s, which was later, of course, overthrown. They had crop substitution programs um, and you can see with this graph that we put up that the levels had reduced quite substantially by the year 2000. But after the foreign invasion, uh, of course, there were US and British troops that came in and the levels of opium production, particularly in the British-controlled Helmand province in the south, mm -hmm. dramatically expanded. I mean, the graph shows various seasonal ups and downs in terms of the production, but you can see by 2017 um, the level it was compared to 2001. Um, now, since the Taliban, since the US withdrawal and the Taliban um, retaking control of the country uh, in 2021, over the course of one year, they've now, through a, a series of decrees prohibiting the cultivation of opium poppies, but also of the trade and processing of opiates, so they went even beyond what the previous Taliban government had done, and they've reduced already within a year uh, the poppy crops by 80%. Mm. So this is a dramatic success. However... Speaking about international think tankers as we were before, um, William Byrd, who was a former Afghanistan World Bank country manager and who's now mm. working for the US Institute of Peace, put out this wonderful article under this headline we'll put on the screen. The Taliban's successful opium ban is bad for Afghans and the world. This is on the 8th of June. Um, so it reports uh, the success that has occurred but goes on to talk about how the economic shock from the opium ban will be enormous 
Afghanistan's farm-level rural economy has lost more than one US $1 billion per year worth of economic activity as a result of this. Um, Afghanistan's economy is very weak anyway, and now they're at even greater risk of hunger, malnutrition and associated health problems. Um, replacing poppies with wheat is economically unviable, especially for households owning limited or no land. They need cash crops. Wheat is a low-value crop and a poor substitute for opium. I mean, this is yeah. wild. And this is coming from the guys talking about how weak the economy is who supported the move when the US withdrew uh, to not only put unilateral sanctions and various restrictions on the economy, but to steal over $9 billion US dollars worth of Afghanistan's um, foreign reserves held in the US Federal Reserve. And not only that, you mentioned this guy was World Bank country manager. We Mm. can put the photo on the screen of the US Marines patrol protecting the poppy fields. Yep. He was country manager when they set that up, Mm. right? I wouldn't be surprised if this guy was actually a a deep cover CIA agent because the CIA, this is what the CIA does. Mm. They created the Golden Triangle. Yeah. In in um, east in Southeast Asia, you know that supply the the, the previous big supplier of um, of uh, these drugs to the world, and uh, lo and behold, as soon as they get back in char- put their puppets back in charge of, you know, and and of course the Taliban has problems and bad things about it. Everybody knows this, but yeah, they stamped out they stamp out heroin production. The CIA comes in and starts it up again and makes it bigger and badder than ever. Oh. This guy is the country manager for the World Bank that's organising and, and um, facilitating the financial arrangements um, for this drug trade. Yeah. And and now he's complaining about how bad it is that they're growing food instead of mm-hmm. instead of um, drugs. And yeah. you know, opiates have a, a an important place in the legitimate pharmaceutical industry. Mm-hmm. Of course, everybody knows this, but. That's not where that stuff's going. No. And, uh, yeah, and so and no mention in this article about that $9 billion plus theft and the sanctions that cut that tried to cut their whole economy off and collapse it just out of revenge for them, you know, f- taking over the country again as soon as the Americans pulled out because that was always going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the failed regime change operation replacing the Taliban with the Taliban. <laughs> yeah, yeah, 20 years and how many trillions of dollars. Yeah. Um, but, of course, it's only failed from the perspective of, of you know, yeah, they, they didn't right. go in there to win the war. No. It was it was to do what they've been doing in the meantime, and now they pull out and they just leave chaos behind them, and now they're complaining when it's not as chaotic as they wanted it to be. Mm-hmm. That's what this is. Yeah. Um, and, and he concludes the article by saying that the international response to these Taliban successors must be clear-eyed about the very real costs the ban imposes both on Afghanistan and the world uh, on top of the other very serious economic and social problems mm. the country faces. And one of those costs, he says, is the massive outflow of migrants to Turkey and Europe, as if the, these kind mm. of regime change operations from Afghanistan to Iraq, you know, to Syria and Libya haven't caused, you know, look at the people dying right now mm. in the Mediterranean trying to reach Italy and so forth as a result of these wars yeah, yeah. over decades. Yeah, never mind the refugee flows from bombing the country for 20 years. That's right, yeah. yeah. And, uh, well, the good news, though, um, is that Afga- Afghanistan is um, 
and you know the Chinese and, and others of the, the Belt and Road Project and various economic uh, development initiatives in that part of the world. They're reaching out to Afghanistan mm. to uh, bring it in on these uh, you know rail rail corridors and um, and uh, different different projects, economic connectivity projects, and so on. So it's not all doom and gloom, no. um, and that's why these guys are upset. Well, that's people right. like this bird fellow. Yeah, and you can read more about that. Contact us for a copy of our Australian Alert Service as a sample if you haven't seen it before. You can subscribe to that. Um, we've updated some of the posit- those positive developments in terms of um, nations rallying around the BRICS countries, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, to create a new fair and just economic system that will actually address those economic problems. Um, and just some final reminders... Uh, we put out a media release today about um, the David McBride case. And again, this is revealing war crimes stemming from Afghanistan, but more broadly for the Australian military. So have a look at that. There's important things happening on that front with his case coming up. Uh, also, if you haven't already done so, please write to Prime Minister Albanese via the portal, which we'll put the link in the information box below, to demand he actually... Um, take the US to task on this issue about releasing Assange. So the final Assange's final appeal is in motion now. We haven't heard the results coming out of London, but we may do so very soon, and hopefully that result will not be him on a plane to the USA, uh, but it may well be. And another thing that you can do if you want to help on that front, um, we can, again, make the link available Uh, Julian Assange has his 52nd birthday coming up very soon and the campaign team are trying to get as many just brief birthday messages as possible to brighten his day and tell him to hang in there because we're taking these bastards on and we've got them surrounded. Um, They might think they've got Julian trapped, but he's trapped them in a big way and that's why he's there. Um, And then finally, uh, we talked last week in the show about the effort to um, get rid of checks And we did mention that if you wanted to, you could make a supplementary submission uh, to the regional banking inquiry regarding how that would affect you, particularly if you're in a regional remote area that doesn't have good internet access, you can make a supplementary submission uh, about um, getting rid of checks. So a number of things you can do there, but stay tuned. Hopefully we'll have more from very good news from Canberra in the next... um, 24, 48 hours, and we'll report on that next week. But in the meantime, go to our website to find out more. So that's it for the show this week. Thanks, Richard. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks for tuning in, and see you again next week. Authorised by Robert Bowick, Citizens Party, Melbourne.